Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing today? <laughs> My name's Tim, and welcome to Greater Alton Church. Uh, I've been off for a month, and uh, so I'm a little pumped, all right? Uh, I'm also a little nervous. If, you, if you've not done something for about a month, you, you feel a little rusty. And so I don't know if that's going to show today or not. We'll see. Um, but it's good, it's good to be uh, with you all again. Uh, can't say enough. I appreciate Alan and Gary filling in and taking care of the pulpit, giving me that month off. I can't believe July went like that. I had so many things I had to get done, and I got about half of them done. So um, I thank those two guys for doing that, and I um, and, uh, hope that uh, maybe we can do that again sometime. Okay, we've been in this series, Storyteller. Dude. Notice at the top of the notes it says number 17. Man, that's a... You know, Jesus told a lot of stories, and we decided to talk about the parables. Gary came up with this list, showed us a chronological order of the, of the stories of Jesus, and we noticed there was a lot of them. And so we wanted to spend a significant amount of time talking about the stories of Jesus. And Jesus was a storyteller. He told more stories than anyone in the Bible. In fact, look at this passage here up on the screen. This is in Matthew, I believe, uh, the book of Matthew 13. It says, Jesus used stories when he spoke to the people. In fact, he did not tell them anything without using stories. And I mean, do you like to hear stories? I love to hear stories. I love to tell stories. I could talk to a fence post for 30 minutes. I can. I, I, I can do that. I don't know if that's bragworthy. But I remember uh, over the weekend or before the weekend, my sons took me to a Cardinal game, which the Cardinals won at the bottom of the ninth on a walk-in. We left at the eighth inning. But but on the way there, I'm with my two sons, and Matthew, my youngest, is is uh, uh, works at a, as an ER nurse and starts telling ER stories. Oh my! You always want people to write books on this, and I'm sure there are books, but it made the hair stand on the back of your neck. I was like, you're kidding me. What did you do? What did you think? And I couldn't get enough of them. Tell me another one. Tell me another one. Jesus loved telling stories, told many stories, and, and we're looking at these stories. These, they call, are called parables. And he, used, he uses parables for, for a reason. They, they um, have terms and items and situations that people can relate to. He talks about sheep and shepherds. Well, that's exactly what those people, a lot of people understood that. He talked about money. They understood that. He, he talks about coins and sons and, and, and uh, all kinds of things. But this particular parable today I want to look at, he's talking about a very popular parable. And it's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It's found in Luke 16, if you want to turn there. And this parable um, is, is very popular today because a lot of people will use this parable to talk about heaven and hell. They look at the heaven and hell elements of it. The last time I preached this passage was at my father's funeral in 1986. That's how long ago... Uh, I've actually preached this passage. And man, things sure have changed since 1986. I've, I've grown a lot more in my Bible knowledge. And I'm learning that this parable has got a lot more to say to us than some references to life after death. Let's look at this, this passage. It's going to take it up in verse 19. If you'd like to read, I'm reading from the NIV. It says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and, and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. 
Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came and the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let, them warn, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And then the story just ends. It just ends abruptly. Now, I told you a minute ago, this is a very popular story. A lot of us are familiar with it. But I don't mean it. When I say it's it's a popular story, I don't mean today it's a popular story. This was a popular story in the time of Christ. This was a story for generations had been told by the rabbis and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This story, Josephus refers to it historically before Jesus, that this story was a popular story. So Jesus is using a story that the Pharisees have actually used. It's as if he's saying, you know, you've been teaching this story for so long. Maybe you forgot the lesson that you were trying to teach. And you need to learn it yourselves. Now this story has, like I say, gone back generations and generations. The references to the afterlife are not connected to any other references in the Bible. In fact, there's no other place where we can read about life after death, specifically like this, before the judgment, than just in Luke 16. This is foreign to the rest of the Bible. It doesn't connect with the concepts of the Bible, this chasm and the Abraham's bosom. And You say, well, where did this all come from? Well, it's believed it came from Egyptian and Greek influence from generations. So Jesus is using this story, but he may not be endorsing its contents. It's a popular story. It's kind of like me using the three pigs to make a point. Now, do I believe pigs can build houses? No, I don't. I want to make that clear. I do not believe pigs can build houses. Do I believe a wolf can huff and puff and blow a house down? No, I do not believe that. Yet, there, would, would you agree there might be a moral to the story or a lesson from the story? You know, this is not new. The Apostle Paul quotes poets and philosophers in the book of Acts, doesn't he? He says, even some of your own poets have said this. Some people of your own culture have said this, but it didn't mean he endorsed it. So when Jesus uses this story, he may not be endorsing the concepts in this story per se, but he's trying to make a point, though. He's really trying to make a point. I hope you follow me there, because that's important if you're going to understand the meaning of this parable. Oh, is the story real, Tim, or is it a parable? Well, 
That's a good question. A lot of people think it's a story because Lazarus is, there's a name given in it, and, so it, and Jesus never uses names in parables, so you've got a name, Lazarus, and, and maybe that's why uh, it's a real story. Is it a real story? I don't think it is a real story, and here's why I don't believe that. It was a parable before Jesus was on earth. He's been using parables the entire time. Last week, Gary talked about the shrewd manager. Why would he change all of a sudden and have a real story? So because this is a parable... That means that the imagery and the, the, the things in this parable are significant to the audience. Whoever's listening to this story gives us a clue as to what it's, who, it's, who it's for and what it's really about, and we get its true meaning. You know, if you're too busy focusing on the heaven and hell element of this passage, you're going to miss the main point. Because the main point is the punchline at the end of the chapter or at the end of his story. You're saying, what was that again? Well, look, you're on your smartphone, you're in your Bible, look. I don't mind you looking at something while I'm talking. People do it all the time, okay? But see, so this, the point is not about heaven and hell. So what's the story really about? Is it about money? Is it about rich people and poor people? I mean, it looks like the rich man goes to Hades or whatever, torment, and the poor guy goes to Abraham's side. That looks like paradise, something wonderful. So is it about... If you're rich, you go to hell, and if you're poor, you go to heaven. No, it's not about that. But Jesus is emphasizing, look at the stark difference between these two people on earth, and look at the stark difference between these two people after they've been on earth. And that's significant. That is significant. So, for example, in Luke 16, remember, right in the middle between these two parables, this is what was said, and Gary again last week, pointed this out. The Pharisees were listening to all these things, is what it says. Just after the parable of the shrewd manager, it says the Pharisees were listening. They criticized Jesus. They sneered at Him. They rolled their eyes. Why? Because they loved money. Then Jesus says this to them. You make yourselves look good in front of people, but God knows what is really in your hearts. Hear that? You might have the appearance of spiritual. You might have the appearance uh, that you know the Bible. You might have the appearance of religion. You might even have the appearance of having a lot and you've got it going for you. But I know and God knows and you know what's really in your heart. What people think is important, or I'm sorry, what people think is important is not worth, is worth nothing to God. He's saying, what you think is important is not as important what God, God thinks something else is important. So what's he dealing with here? He goes on to this second story of this rich man and Lazarus. Well, I think what he's doing is, you've got to remember, the audience, the Pharisees are listening, and the disciples are there. And that's significant to me. Why is that, Tim? Because I think he's talking to the Pharisees. And the disciples are listening in as well. Now, why would the disciples need to hear this? Because he doesn't want them to fall into the trap that the Pharisees are in. So as disciples, if you're a Christian, if you're a disciple, you claim to be a Christian, you want to understand the true meaning of this passage. And it's not about heaven and hell. I'm not saying that you can't preach about heaven and hell from it. I know a lot of good sermons, read a lot, listened to a lot of good sermons on the topic. I don't fault people for that. But there's a bigger message than what happens after you die. It's, it's, again, how do I know that? Because it's packed. This particular story is packed with all kinds of terms and images that a Pharisee would recognize. A Jew would recognize some of them, but a Pharisee especially. 
Uh, it's kind of like, uh, I like westerns. And I love the movie Tombstone. I know there's some Wyatt Earp people. Kevin Cosner, you like that one. Remember they came out at the same time? I think they were, you know, who was going to get out there first, you know. But Tombstone with Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer. I'm going to be Huckleberry. That's really, really good. You know, well, there's, remember that exchange between the Ringo kid and Doc Holliday at the saloon, and they start speaking in Latin? Anybody remember what I'm talking about? They start speaking in Latin to one another, and everybody's kind of like, what's going on here? Have you ever found out what they were talking about? I got online this morning, I said, you know, I wonder what they were saying. And so there's a guy who translates what they're saying in Latin. And if you remember, Val Kilmer is talking to him, because I don't like the Ringo kid. I hate him. He reminds me of me. Now I know I hate him. You know, look, honey, it's a Ringo kid. He's supposed to be the fastest gun in the West, you know. And then he says something in Latin, blah, 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 blah. And what it means is, my drinking makes me speak this way. And the Ringo kid comes back and goes, well, at least you're good at something. And then he comes back with, I'm good at something, but it's not drinking. And the Ringo kid says, well, you know, you want to experience what I'm good at. I've got it right here. And he pats his pistol. And everybody else at the table is going, what's going on here? And then Val Kilmer, he says, well, it's your funeral. They're getting ready to draw on one another right there in the saloon. And of course, everybody calms down. Let's all calm down. And, it's, and the scene's over. Well, this is, this is kind of like what I imagine is going on here. Jesus is talking in some phrases, in some ways, that the Pharisees are going... I know what he's saying. And disciples may be going, I think I know what he's saying. What's going on here? And the crowd's like, what's going on here? And he's zeroing in on the Pharisees. And it's not about heaven and hell that the Pharisees need to learn more about. No, he's wanting to talk to them about what's in their heart. You see, they're like, when you read this passage, isn't it ironic that the man who doesn't have a name is the main character? He's got three lines in the movie. Lazarus has a name and he doesn't say a word. But the rich man, the nameless man, he's speaking to Abraham back and forth as as if Jesus is saying, look, you're speaking to me. I'm God and and we're going to have this out right now. Let me tell you, you're like this rich man and you're condemned. You're in trouble and you don't even realize it. And so... Well, what are you talking about? Well, the guys, the rich man's a lot like the Pharisees. God has blessed them so much. They're so special. They're Jewish. They're religious. That's another thing about them. The rich man was religious. How do you know that? He says to Abraham, Father Abraham, and Abraham calls him son. He's Jewish and he's religious. And like the Pharisees, he loved money. He loved money. They loved money as well as he. But the thing about the rich man is, he is condemned. He's in trouble and he's condemned. For what? What is it? Well, I'm going to say again, the disciples are listening too. They're listening along with the Pharisees. And folks, I think the disciples still need to listen to this story. Because you and I can be like the rich man too. We can have a lot in common with the rich man. So it's very important we understand what the meaning, what's the real meaning of this story. Well, let me give you three things I noticed that this story 
is confronting. Because Jesus is confronting the sins of the Pharisees. He's confronting what's in their heart. Remember, he said that. He goes, I know what's in your heart. You know what's in your heart. God really knows what's in your heart. You can show everybody what you want, but I know what's in your heart. And here's the three things he sees he wants to confront in this story. And he'll confront it with he'll confront it in me, and he'll confront it in you. So what's he confront? Well, first, Jesus confronts my indifference. He confronts my indifference. You know, I read this about the rich man, and I, and, and do, I don't know if you noticed this. Maybe you might notice the same thing. He's not vile. He's not violent. He's not lewd or wicked. He doesn't appear to be a swindler or a drunk or a liar. None of that's said about him. He's, in fact, it says he's living a real good life. In fact, he seems to be a pretty good guy, but there's a big problem. And we see it in verses 19 through 21. Look at this. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate, there's the problem. At his gate, where he lives, under his nose, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Every day this man, this rich man is living, you could say the American dream, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It just seems like he's got it all together. He's got it made. He's dressed in purple and fine linen. And the Pharisees know what he... They know this story. They know this story. And they pick up, they know what that's about. They see the parallel. Purple, royalty. That's what you wore when you wore purple. You were of royal birth. And the Pharisees could trace their birth to Abraham himself. Royal. Not only that, fine linen was worn by a priest. So they were religious. They were a priestly group like this rich man. And he's eating the best foods, sleeping in the best of comfort. But every day, a beggar is at his gate. Every day. And at this gate, stray dogs come. And if if this guy gets any mercy at all, Lazarus gets any kind of compassion, it's from a stray dog licking his wounds. And as his stomach growls, he's thinking, oh man, if I could just get some crumbs, a morsel, something from the rich man's table. See, this is the heart of the Pharisee. They live among the tax collectors and the sinners, and they've lived among them so so long, they've grown unmoved and calloused. And you say, Tim, uh, I think I'm a pretty caring person. You know, I, I think I'm a pretty caring person too. But I have some indifference in my life. You can't be a preacher and not struggle with indifference. You can't work in ministry for 30-some years and not struggle. to. Why are you, what are you talking about, Tim? I've, I stand before a parade of people and talk before a parade of people. I've watched this church, the face of this church, change over and over and over again. I watch people come and I watch people go. And I, don't, I hope you don't do this. I hope you never think this. But I have sat here in a circle after a baptism singing we're part of the family, thinking, how long will this one last? 
How long will this before they leave? Before they fall away? And sometimes I just find myself growing, you know, here comes another person in. Well, that's nice. And I run into this indifference in my heart. Anybody else know what I'm talking about there? How about this? How do you feel about panhandlers today? Beggars. You go into the game. We saw a couple of them going to the game and coming from the game. Guy's got his saxophone out. Guy just got money for food. And you, you've read, you've read the articles. You've seen the, 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 the news reels or the news, what they say. They say, oh, these, some of these people raking in six figures. And that's true. Professional panhandlers saying, making as much as $180 an hour. And there's others that are making only $20 a day. How do you feel about panhandling when you see them? A little indifferent? Or somebody got the same old, oh, here we go again. They got a problem with their marriage again. They got a problem with their finances again. They got a problem with their addiction. Oh, another relapse again. And do you find yourself running into your indifference? Anybody besides me? Jesus says, you got to deal with this indifference. I'm not asking if you are indifferent this morning. I'm asking you, where are you indifferent? Because we all have it. We all have it. Every day, every day this guy is living the American dream and every day there's a beggar around him. And somehow, somehow, the Pharisees' spirituality has made them smug. Somehow they've got this idea, life is good for me, therefore I must be a good person. And they're forgetting it's God that's good. It's God the one is the one that's blessed them. It's not their effort. Their own goodness. Even Paul would say, there's nothing good that lives in me. He understood that. If there's anything good, it's from, from heaven above. All good and perfect gifts come from heaven above, right? No, the rich man's assuming, and like the Pharisees, assuming that because it's good, I guess I'm good. But it's good because God is good. Let me read something from Romans chapter 9. This is the message. A paraphrase. I just like the way it says it. Paul's talking to the, the church at Rome. They are Gentile. They're not Jewish. Predominantly Gentile. And, he's t- and he, starts, he starts talking about his, the Jewish people. He starts talking about the people, his heritage. He goes, at the same time, you need to know that I carry with me at all times a huge sorrow. It's an enormous pain deep within me, and I'm never free of it. I'm not exaggerating. So he says, I'm not lying to you. This is hard for me. When I think of it, you ever had a dull ache inside, emotional ache, it just you can't shake? Paul is saying he has that, and he says that Christ and the Holy Spirit can confirm it. What is it, Paul? He goes, it's the Israelites. If there were any way I could be cursed, listen to what he says here, if there were any way I could be cursed by the Messiah so they could be blessed by Him, I'd do it in a minute. They're my family. You see, these people, this is my heritage. These are my people. I grew up with them. And look what it says there. That's what I want you to see. They had everything going for them. Like what? Family, glory, covenants, revelation, worships, 
promises to say nothing of being the race that produced the Messiah, the Christ, who is God over everything. He's saying they had it made. Every day they had it made. But they're lost. They're condemned. Why? Well, it has nothing to do with their riches. It has nothing to do with what they have in their hands. It's what they have in their heart. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you grown indifferent? I know some of us here, some of us here especially used to be a leader and used to work hard in ministry and you don't do it as much. You don't do it maybe at all anymore because it hurts too much. Am I right? Thank you. It's the truth. You put your heart out there and you get clobbered. You put your talents out there, your treasures, and you don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to study with anybody anymore. I don't want to disciple anybody anymore. Why? It's too hard. Why? Because I'm afraid I'm going to say something stupid and they're going to fall away or, or they're going to leave like the last person I worked with or the other experience I had. And so what do you do now? Your heart is just indifferent. I don't want to notice it anymore. I don't want to look at it anymore. You can't tell me the rich man didn't notice that man at his gate. He grew to the point where he didn't notice him anymore. He overlooked him. Too much too much work. Too much energy. Has your heart grown indifferent? Has your listen guys, I want you to know those of you that have stayed, praise God. I praise God every day. How do we make it through the week and end up back here? Huh? And we, it's a miracle sometimes. We just got back. You know, it took, I, that week was rough, Tim, but hey man, I know I had a rough month too. And man, it's nice to be back. You know, you go visit someplace. We went up to Galena, Illinois. Nice cooler up there. Eight, eight miles from Wisconsin, where the Green Bay Packers live. <laughs> Things like that. And you think, I wonder what it would be like to live here. You think like that. You tell yourself things like that. And I just realize I take my heart wherever I go anyway. I am so glad I'm back. And I, it's, it's a miracle that we're back. Sometimes it's just, a, by the grace of God, you've come through the doors again. By the grace of God, you open up your Bible once again. Okay? But I want to say it. With all the stuff that God has given you, please hear me out. All the stuff that God has given you, have you grown indifferent to the Lazarus under your nose? The greater question, just ask yourself, who is my Lazarus? Who's the person at my gate, not at your gate? You know, or in other words, I'm thinking about the person. Who's the Lazarus at my gate that doesn't have what I have? that longs for a crumb of what I have. A crumb of peace. A morsel of salvation. A little taste of purpose. Just a bite. Can I just have a bite of joy? You know, the Bible says it doesn't give you the idea that he ever got anything. He just longed for it. Who's that Lazarus? That's, that's at your gate this morning. You see, it's interesting. I, I, I think I figured out why 
Jesus names Lazarus because his name means the Lord helps. And that would, that would, that would get the Pharisees' attention. Here's a guy the Lord helps. You know, when he died, it says the angels took him right to Abraham's side, not to the grave. That God helped him. But he says he's the guy, let me say it this way, he's, his name means the Lord helps. And I just wonder if he was at the rich man's gate because God was wanting to use the rich man to help him. The one that had it all, that had it made. To give something to someone who had nothing. He's carried to Abraham's side. I want you to know the rich man is special. Purple, fine linen. But Lazarus is special too. We have to see this. How's that? Because his name means the Lord helps. And when he's helped, he's brought to Abraham's side, his bosom. What does that mean, Tim? It's like uh, in the, in the, when the Lord's Supper, remember the picture of the Lord's Supper? There's someone leaning closest to Jesus as if to lean against his breast, his bosom. And who was that? It was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. To be at Abraham's side. That imagery that Jesus is trying to say to the Pharisees is, He is close to God. He's dear to God. He matters to God. I want you to know this morning, whatever you're going through, you matter to God. He wants to be close to you. And He wants to help you. And I want to say to the rest of us here, if you're saying, well, I'm not so down and out. I'm pretty good up and to the right. God wants to use you to help the Lazarus at your gate. Proverbs 22.2 says, The rich and the poor are all created by the Lord. They're both special. What's the second thing Jesus is dealing with? Well, Jesus is not only going to confront my indifference, He wants to confront my selfishness. So in this story, He confronts my selfishness. I'm not going to ask you if you're selfish, because we already know the answer to that, huh? Right? Take a picture. I've heard it said this way. Take a big picture, a group picture, and you're in it. And whose eyes, where do you, where do your eyes go to? To your face. And if your eyes are closed and you're chewing gum and your mouth is open, it's a bad picture. Take it again. Now, if my eyes are closed and my mouth is open, that's okay. It looks great to me. See what I'm saying? It's, it's, we're, we're just so selfish. We're always running. I know I'm always running. You're always running into this selfishness, selfish person. See, the problem of the rich man went deeper than his indifference. Lying behind his cold heart was a self-centered life occupied with pleasure, with his pleasure and his possessions. And let's look at that passage and let me show you what I mean by that. It says, The time came and the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. So the angels carry Lazarus to paradise, to a good place. The rich man also died and was buried. He had a funeral. Now, physically speaking, the rich man had this great funeral. You know he did. And the beggar was thrown in a hole. But Jesus wants them to understand, yes, the rich man was buried, and that was, that was it for him. But the beggar God took care of. In Hades, it says, the rich man now, 
where he was in torment, he looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. And look what Abraham's reply is. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in agony. What is he saying? He's saying, well, for all the good you got now, you're going to get punished. No. He's saying, remember all the good you had. You were so caught up in it, and it was all yours. Well, now it's too late. Once you die, it's too late. But I don't, what I notice, and permit me, if I'm wrong, you can correct me out in the foyer. It seems to me the guy is preoccupied with pleasure even after he's dead. Well, uh, hey, Abraham, yeah, uh, get Lazarus over there. And get, tell him to get that finger in some water and come over here and, and touch because I'm in agony. I need some pleasure. I got five brothers. I got five brothers that I'd like you to tell Lazarus to serve me, basically, and go take care of my problem. But isn't it good, Tim, that he's reached out to his family? He's thinking about his family? Yeah, but have you noticed it's just his family and no one else? How many times, guys, I'll tell you what, even we call it God's family, but listen, man, too many times DNA is playing a part in what we do. That we do anything for our physical family, but when it comes to God's family, it's a little different. We're a little concerned. We're a little more guarded. He may not be selfish when he's thinking of his family. After all, that is cool that he's saying, I don't want my brothers to come to this place. I've been told that hell is one of the most evangelistic places that ever existed. That nobody wants anybody else to come. So if you have a family member and you wonder where he is in eternity, just remember, wherever he is, heaven or hell, just remember this. He, does a, he wants you to go to heaven. Wherever he is. Okay? Or she. You see, this guy's been blessed with so much, yet he's keeping it to himself. I, I, Proverbs 18.1 is written by the richest man that ever lived on earth. I know Jesus was rich, but we're talking about material-wise. Material Solomon had more money and more stuff than anybody ever. You'd call, you could call him the Bill Gates of his time. He had more money than what he could do with. And look what he says in Proverbs 18.1. It's selfish and stupid to think only of yourself. How can you say that, Solomon? I think he could say that because he knows something about selfishness. It degrades your life. You see, this, this desire to keep it all to yourself actually takes things away from your life. And besides that, it seals your doom. Romans 2, look what it says here. Some people, always, by always continuing to do good, live for God's glory, for honor, and for life that has no end. God will give them life forever. But other people are selfish. They refuse to follow truth and instead follow evil. God will give them His punishment and anger. What's he telling the Pharisees here? You know, in, in this Luke 16, what's Paul trying to convey? That if God has blessed you with so much, don't keep it for yourself. That God condemns selfishness. So I'm saying to you this morning, I'm not, again, we all could say, 
are we, am I selfish? Come on. Yeah. You don't tell me that. I'd ask, ask that. But where am I selfish? That's what I need to look at. When am I selfish? That's what I need to check out. Why? Why? Because I could be condemned over it. I could be condemned over it. Let me ask you this morning, what are you doing with the blessings God is giving you? Are you keeping them all to yourself? Philippians 2 says this, Don't let selfishness and pride be your guide. Instead, be humble and give more honor to others than to yourselves. See, God didn't put you here or me here just to use up some resources and die. He, 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 he wants to use us to help others, to, help, to lift others, to share with others. Hebrews 13 says, Don't forget to do good and to share what you have with others because sacrifices like these are very pleasing to God. There's no condemnation in, this, in, in sharing, in generosity. God is he's so pleased with that. So the question is not, again, I want to say, the question this morning I want you to understand is, is not are you selfish? The question that you have, that I have before me is, am I? Where am I selfish? It's obvious I am, but where? Where do I find myself bumping into my selfishness? I need to confront that. Because it has a big impact on how I am after I die. But there's a third one, and to me, this is, this is the punchline. To me, this is the one the other two hinge from. And in this story, Jesus is going to confront my unbelief. He confronts my unbelief in this story. Now, I'm not going to say again to you, do you, ever, do you have any places where you struggle trusting God? Come on. We know, right? I know. Not what you struggle with. I know what I struggle with. Is there a little atheist in all of us? Maybe. Well, we just have trouble trusting that, doing that, applying that particular principle. Even the disciples one time said to Jesus, help us in our unbelief. So it's not unusual. It's normal. Follow me? It's normal to have some unbelief. That doesn't mean it's okay. It means you need to deal with it. The fair, this, is what, this is the main point of the parable. This is the main point. Look what it says. He answered them, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus. The rich man is seeing, he's talking here. Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. By the way, it's interesting. He has five brothers. Judah had five brothers, all born from Leah. Okay? So he's talking about Israel here. He's, he's saying, you Pharisees... If you don't straighten up after you die, you're going to be concerned about the rest of Israel. It's going to be clear what you need to be doing with your life after you die. So you, you want to be clear now. And so he says, Send him to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. What's he say? The rich man saying, i got five brothers. They feel the same way. They're doing the same thing. I don't want them to end up here. So send Lazarus to go take care of this. Abraham says, they got Moses and the prophets. Who? They got Moses and the prophets. Let's see, what would that refer to? Well, see, Moses wrote five books. Can you name them? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Joanne's favorite. Numbers, 
in Deuteronomy. I, don't, I mean, she likes that book. I like it too. So there's five books right there. And the prophets. Can you name some of the prophets? Jeremiah, Elijah, yeah, but there's, there's Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. What a goofy name. Habakkuk. Habakkuk. Gazutai. No, no, no. I wasn't I was saying his name. Zephaniah, Zechariah. You know, you got Malachi. You got all these prophets. He goes, you got Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Uh, by the way, those guys are dead. Aren't they? They're dead. So how can he listen to them? They have to be the ones that wrote it down. The written Word of God. They have the written Word of God. And look what the, look what the rich man says. No, Father Abram. He argues with him. He says, no, the, the Word of God won't work. But if someone from the dead were to come, you know, they would repent. And Jesus says, here's your punchline. And this is what this parable is dealing with. He's trying to tell the Pharisees, I wish you would believe me. You believe so much, but you need to believe me. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. You can just see the Pharisees going, I know you're talking about. You're talking about me. Yeah, you guys know the Bible inside and out. You are so religious. You, got, you know Moses. You know the prophets. You could, by the way, Pharisees could quote the Bible word for word. The whole 39 books. Did you know that? Flawlessly. You know it. You've memorized it. You teach it. But you don't believe it. What do you mean we don't believe it? Abraham's our father. Yeah, but... Well, the rich man wants a sign. Remember, they asked Jesus for a sign. He said, I'll give you a sign. Three days I'll be dead, and third day I'll come back to life. There's your sign. And let me ask you a question, guys. Did the sign work? No, it did not. The Pharisees did not turn to him. Today we want signs. We want some way, some outside thing. And we say, well, the Bible says, I don't care what the Bible says. I'm looking for an omen. I'm looking for a miracle. I'm looking for a sign. Like that's going to make me believe. Yeah, what? Five minutes? Believe what? He says, by the way, here's a case where Jesus says the Old Testament has a purpose in in a disciple's life. You need to know that Old Testament. In fact, look at, he's basically saying here in John 5 in the scriptures, he says, You search the scriptures. And by the way, who's he talking to? Who's you? It's the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, and the scribes, teachers of the law. You search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. Do they? Absolutely. But the scriptures point to me. Yet you refuse to come to me and receive this life. What's he saying? You study it, but you don't believe it. Unbelief is at the root of your indifference and selfishness. Imagine, here is God in the flesh squared off against a Pharisee who knows the Bible, knows the Scriptures too. And he says, you don't give and you're selfish and I am God in the flesh and I came here to what? To be served? but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. And that's what I want you to do. Don't you understand, Pharisee? 
you're, you're to know this Bible so you can know me, so you can believe in me, so you can trust me and live like me and care about other people and share your stuff. It's basically Jesus saying, if you don't listen to God's Word about me, you won't listen to me. Now before we come down to Pharisees too hard, because it looks like what's happened is Jesus is going to slip through their fingers, because look at verses 45 and 47 of chapter 5. He says, look, it's not I that will accuse you before the Father. He's saying, I'm not going to be the one to condemn you. Who's going to condemn you? Moses will accuse you. Yes, Moses, in whom you put your hopes. If you really believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe what I say? I mean, I just want you to ask a few simple questions this morning. I ask them myself to me and like you'd ask them to you. Am I really searching the Scriptures? Am I really looking into the Word of God? Is it something I want to know more than anything else? Because there lies faith. But Tim, i got some favorite Scriptures, and I want you to know that's wonderful. i got favorite Scriptures too. I've got them plastered in, you know, on mirrors, and, and sometimes you might have one in a garden somewhere on a stone or a rock. It's your favorite verse. Maybe you've got it on your screensaver or you've got it wherever it is. You know, you've got it someplace, a bumper sticker. And they give you great comfort. The Lord is my shepherd. Greater is He that is in you than in the world. And This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Comforting verses. But there's also some verses in the Bible that aren't designed to bring comfort, but bring conviction. And I just wonder how many of those we've got on our mirrors and cars and screensavers and rocks. Because they're the ones we don't believe. What's the acid test for believing, guys? It's application. You know, it's those verses, there's those passages, there's those places that say, I don't like that verse. And I, I mean, I don't have, I do not have anywhere I can recall a verse that says, forgive one another as I have forgiven you. I don't like that verse. Anybody with me on that one? You know what I'm saying? I don't particularly think that's a... I like the part, forgiven me, but me do the forgiving? I mean, what passage do you think you need to put? Maybe that's what we need to do. Replace some of these passages. I had somebody say to me, if I put the passage that I really have trouble believing on a rock, I'd probably throw it through my windshield or something. And I go, well, uh, okay. But maybe that's what we ought to do. Grab a verse, grab a passage or a concept we know is so challenging that we have a hard time believing and put that in front of us all the time to help us deal with this unbelief. Because guys, unbelief will determine... Believing or not believing is going to determine where you're going to be in eternity. Let me read one of my favorite verses. It's the very first verse I ever memorized as a third grader. Uh, Peggy Adams, my Sunday school teacher, scribbled it on a note on a piece of paper and put it in a new little New Testament. I still have it. And inside she wrote John 3.16. You probably remember that verse. 
You remember the guy that held the sign with the crazy hair behind home plate all the time at football games. I don't know whatever happened to him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever, that anyone, whoever, I love that word, don't you? Whoever, it doesn't matter who, whoever, anyone who believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that an awesome promise? And those of us that, you know, the church here, we believe that you must be baptized to be saved because Jesus said, He that believes and is baptized will be saved. We, we get that. This verse should not make us nervous. Jesus promises, if you trust Me, if you believe Me, you can have eternal life. Verse 17 says, another favorite I see on bumper stickers. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. And we go, yeah, yeah. But have you ever read the next two verses? I don't see them on any bumper stickers. I don't see them on any rocks or nobody's scribbling them on a highway somewhere on a bridge. There is no, listen to this, there is no eternal doom awaiting those who trust to save them. But those who don't trust Him have already been tried and condemned for not believing in the only Son of God. Their sentence is based on this fact that the light from heaven came into the world. Is that Jesus? But they loved the darkness more than the light. Did they love the light? They may have, but they loved the darkness more for their deeds were evil. What's he talking about here? They didn't believe. And I'm saying this morning, guys, where are you indifferent? Deal with it. Go after it. Where are you selfish? Deal with it. Confront it. How do I do that? By dealing with where I'm having trouble believing. God will help you. God will help you. You could say your name is Lazarus and God will help you in your unbelief. And that's what really this, this parable is about. Now the story abruptly ends. And you notice that? It just ends. <laughs> Like, so what happens? I mean, Nathan or Matthew will tell a story, or I'll tell a story, and I'll always hear, like times I've told stories here, and someone says, well, how did it end, Tim? What? That story you said. What story? That story in the sermon you spent ten minutes doing. You didn't finish it. And I, and I you know, oh, that story. Well, uh, okay, here's how it ended. This story just ends. And I think it's on purpose. Because he leaves it to the decision of his audience. What did the Pharisees do? Did they decide? Did they decide to believe in Him and believe Moses and, and repent and believe Him? I don't know. But as a disciple, sitting in the crowd listening to this story, I know what they decided. And you can decide the same thing too, and that's to follow Him. I don't know what you need to confront this morning. I really don't know. Is it your indifference, your selfishness, or your unbelief? But I can tell you, if you'll deal with your unbelief, you'll take care of the other two as well. So that card that you've got, that you have there in your bulletin, here's your chance to write something down and respond to this lesson. We don't have an altar call where people come. We don't even have an altar. And rather than having everybody stare at you if you were to respond, why not just stare at that card 
pray while we sing. Fill out that card, prayer request, or a decision you need to make. Maybe you ought to ask the prayer team, Lord, you know, ask God to help me with my unbelief. Ask God to help me with my indifference. Ask God to help me with my cold heart. Ask God to help me with my selfishness. I know where it is. Just I ask for help to deal with it. Because it will determine your condition after you leave this earth. We're going to let you do that while we sing a song, and then we're going to sing another song and collect those cards and our regular contribution. And then uh, the day will be yours. Thanks for coming, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank You for for Your Word. We always thank You for that, Lord. I always say that every Sunday because we just, just looked at it. Thank You for what You're trying to say to us this morning, Lord. Father, I hope no one here is beat up this morning. But Lord, we're all in the same boat here. I'm looking at my indifference where I'm cold-hearted. I'm looking at where I'm selfish. And Father, I, I know at the, at the root of all that is something that I've refused to accept that You say. I, I really appreciate some of the men in my life, Father, here at this church, who will in mid-sentence stop what they're saying and go, wait a second, I'm being selfish. And we'll give, and we'll give them a few minutes and then they'll say, this is what I sh- should be saying and this is how I should be responding. I don't like it, but I know this is God's will. That, that, that I, I praise you for the men, some of the men around me that just are so interested in pleasing you, Father, that they illustrate it when that choice to please themselves and please you collide. Father, this morning, that collision is going on in these seats. There's the part that, you know, our possessions and our pleasures, like the rich man that we want, we want those things, Father. We enjoy those things, and we sometimes forget they're from You. And Father, we try to keep them when You want us to use them. Father, who's the Lazarus at our gate every day? They're there. We've, we've grown to ignore them. We've grown to, to not hear their plea, not, not notice their sores. They're looking for a crumb. And You've given us more than enough to supply. Help us, Father love people and care for people and share with people and let it all be centered around our trust in You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.